Good morning, church. We just want to give a shout out to everyone here in the Wills Point uh, campus. We're so grateful that you're here. Um, This week, uh, I was reading uh, a quote uh, by uh, a guy I think most of you will know, William Booth. Uh, He was uh, really uh, famous for the Salvation Army and uh, all the little stations that you see set up outside of Walgreens and Walmart and donations made to that uh, all began with him. Uh, But he was a a phenomenal Christian man, and he actually said this um, about 100 years ago. He said, the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And if you begin to really look at what he's saying, he said, you're going to get a watered-down version of the church and ultimately the gospel. You're going to get people who would claim to believe one thing and even profess that belief with their lips, but yet their lives will not function that way. And if you can only imagine what that would look like to have forgiveness without repentance and Christianity without Christ and moreover, a separation of heaven without hell. And that's exactly the day and age that we live in. People who do not want to look to Christ and him high and lifted up, but they want to look to their own means of salvation, their own way of ultimately becoming spiritual beings who Don't move that over into their lives, their politics, or even their regeneration. But that's not the picture of the early church. It's not the picture that we get in Acts chapter 2, and it's not the picture that we get from a people called the ecclesia. The ecclesia are people who were called out by God, out of darkness and into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ. And in the very first week of our message, we know that we're not just called out of something, but we're called back into something. That is community with people. That we cannot do life alone. That as Christians, we're not intended to do life alone. And we're not just talking about other people, although that is significant. But it's also walking out our faith through the gospel and ultimately in a Christ-centered life as we dedicate ourselves to him and then dedicate ourselves to loving other people. And so as we uh, are the people of God called out by him, we also know we're a pillar of truth a pillar of truth that functions the way that God has called us to function. And so in Acts chapter 2, you get a picture of the church in Jerusalem. As they began, and you began to see God do a great work there. And I want to read it again, um, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't, uh, we're going to put it for you up on the screen. But it simply says this, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other, the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And so Peter has just given his long sermon, and there's, there's a response. And they ask, what do we do? What do we do with what we've just heard? And Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so he goes, God can make any man that's dead alive. God can regenerate any heart. He can bring repentance and forgiveness. And he can give you a a picture of what it looks like to live for him. But you must repent, be baptized, call on him, be filled with the Spirit. 
And then that translates over in verse 40 and following. And with many other words, he warns them, he pleads with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. And so last week we, we talked about that there are really nine or ten functions of the church that you and I ought to see matching up with our creed. And so we say our creed is the people of God to be a pillar of truth, called out of darkness back into community, testifying love and truth to the world. That's who the church is. It's not a building. It's not liturgical practices. It's not um, traditional beliefs. It's not priests and monks and monasteries, but it's the people of God. And it's the people of God functioning the, the way that God called us to function. And so here's a handful of the things we discussed last week. We talked about life change, that you ought to see awe-inspiring, radical change in people's hearts and lives, that you ought to have a, a, a handful of people, and hopefully more than a handful of people, that you look at their lives and you go, they are radically transformed. I don't know what happened to them, but they are not the same. That's what you should have in the church. And then from there, you should see people taking their story and sharing it abroad. In um, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1.8. And so you should see that happening as you and I witness to people. We share our story of faith. And then we teach the word. Why? Because we know that the, the word is what's all powerful. We know that the word is what convicts heart. We know the word is what changes lives. We know that God spoke the word and the universe was created. We know that the universe responds to his word. We know that he calmed the storms by his word. We know hearts are regenerated by his word. So we need to teach his word. And so in churches, we ought to be looking for that in local bodies and ultimately ministries that we are part of that they should teach the word. And then from there, it should drive you to fellowship and to care. Meaning that you see here in Acts, they devoted themselves to each other. They, they gave to each other as they had need. They cared for each other. There was authenticity. There was care. And so you go, okay, I see all those things. What else was there? And I want to cover three more uh, today, and then next week and the following week, we're going to wrap up our series, and we're going to cover the last two functions, which you'll see in a few minutes, uh, which are the ordinances, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But you also see in here that they devoted themselves to worship. Now, worship in our mind is something that we may do. It may be something that we attend. Like you and I, if we're not careful, we'll say, hey, we're going to go to church today, and we're going to worship together. And we almost think worship is a service. It's a few songs we sing. Maybe it's a study we're a part of. But ultimately, let me just kind of give you a, a small working definition. Worship really is this. It's us glorifying God with our hearts and with our song. So our voices, our hearts, it's glorifying God. Now, think about this. You don't have to be in a building to do that. 
You don't have to be with a group of people always to do that. You and I can express it in many different ways. I think the trouble, though, is, is that we oftentimes minimize this aspect in our lives and ultimately in our churches. And so I want to give you a picture of what worship really is going to look like at the end of days. And so in Revelation chapter 19, if you look at verses 1 through 10, I want you to see what's happening here and ultimately the response that you see in the heavenly places. And so in verse 1 it says, And after this I heard... John's giving us picture what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality, with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, hallelujah, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So you see the idea of this this punishment that's happening because of the corruption on earth and ultimately to Satan and his foes. And it says in verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all his servants whom you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. Now you wonder why some people go, Hallelujah, right? It's obviously a biblical thing. Revelation 19. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And then look at this, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, no, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy but if you see this he says it sounded like the roar of many waters now let me ask you this what did our worship sound like just a few minutes ago I'll tell you as a spectator or someone joining you in worship I didn't get the roar of many waters you get this picture of worship that is awe-inspiring and ultimately for the glory of God. And, and you go, well, what does that mean? What, what, what does Revelation 19 give a picture of? What do the scriptures give a picture of? And here, here's a couple things that come to mind. One is that God desires your worship, our worship. He desires that. Psalm 147, 10 and 11 simply says this, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who his hope is in steadfast love. Like, like God doesn't, he, he's not taking pleasure in your mind or your strength or your ability. He takes pleasure when you fear him. He takes pleasure in Exodus 23 when you have no other gods before him. He desires our worship. And not only does he desire our worship, get this, he deserves our worship. Psalm 96.9, worship the Lord in splendor of holiness, tremble before him. Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. A.W. Tozer said this, and I think it's so true. He says, in my opinion, 
the greatest single need of the moment is that light-hearted, superficial religionists be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. The holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory from the tabernacle, which happened back in Ezekiel's day. And he says, and as a result, we are left to our own devices and forced to make up some uh, the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of church people. And so you begin to just look at this and you go, if God deserves it, then why don't we give it? And moreover, why do we come up with so many things that seem to grab our attention with lights and drama and all the things that churches fill their time with when ultimately we should just give him worship because he desires it and he deserves it. Why does he deserve it? Think about it. He is your salvation. He is your savior. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is ever present. Psalm 139. He is true. He is eternal. He is the ancient of days. He is just and fair. He is mighty. He is mighty to save. He is sovereign. He is holy. The list goes on and on and on. He is worthy of our praise. And what's interesting is, is that the church displays the glory of God through our worship. And so if, if, if he desires our worship and he deserves it, then you and I need to know that people, See God through our worship, in our response to him. Our voices being left, lifted up, but not just our voices, but our hearts being in tune and in line with him. The way we live our lives, the way we carry ourselves, not only here within the body, but outside of the body. As we interact with people at work or at school, they are looking for peace and hope and joy. A.W., not only... Tozer, did he say what he said a second ago, but he, I also brought along this one. He said, it is delightful to worship God, but it is also a humbling thing. And the man who has not been humbled in the presence of God will never be a worshiper of God at all. He may be a church member who keeps the rules and obeys the discipline, who tithes and goes to a conference, but he'll never be a worshiper unless he is deeply humbled. And it reminds me of so many within the church the man who wants power and position and prominence, but he will not lift his voice. The man who wants to say on many things, who oftentimes speaks loudly with his checkbook, but he will not humble himself before the Lord. True worship is found when you and I submit ourselves in reverence and in humility before a holy God. What does that look like? Well, it's Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Do you see the picture here? And so let me ask you this, okay? Not like a guilt trip, not try some manipulation tactic. I'm just asking you, like, did you and I worship God this morning with the, the idea that he desires and ultimately deserves our praise? Did we think that this morning, like this is the opportunity for us to show the world that not only does he desire it and deserve it, but this is how we show people the glory of God being manifest in our life is through our worship. I mean, think about it. When we commune together, there's something powerful that should be taking place. Like you, you may not realize it, but when God's people get together and sing, typically 
they expected for something powerful to take place. You get the idea of Nehemiah chapter 12, the Levites and uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, many, many others. There's a list of names that you and I would, it would take us hours to pronounce. They've come together after rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and they get a choir to the right and a choir to the left, and they climb up on the walls of Jerusalem, and they sing, and they dance, and they play harps and lyres, and they beat drums, and they celebrate to God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, it doesn't just show you the picture that they get together and sing like Nehemiah 12. They don't just celebrate together, but they express their unity together. It says all these men become as one. So when we come together in worship, listen, it's not about just you and your private little sector, which you've heard so many people before, hey, just spread out and you know, just lift your hands to the Lord and forget about everyone else around you. That's not actually the picture of the church. It's really not a biblical response in worship. A biblical response in worship is God's people coming together in a unified front, proclaiming the message and the hope of God and reconciliation, celebrating with one another a holy God who not only desires, but deserves our worship. And so we lift our voice expecting God to accomplish something when we're together. We gather together when we, when we sing, when we celebrate, when we study God's word in a spiritual war. I don't know if y'all realize that or not. But you get this picture in 2 Chronicles 20, 20 and 22. Jehoshaphat's preparing his guys for war, and they're going to go out. And you know what he, he sends on the front line? He sends out 30 mad men with spears. No, he, sings out, he sends out a choir singing. And all they do is sing to the Lord. And verse 21, and when they had taken counsel of the people, he appointed those who were singing to the Lord and praised him in holy attire. And they went before the army, and they said, Give thanks to the Lord, and his steadfast love endures forever. They began to sing and praise God. And an ambush happened against the men of Ammon and Moabat and the Mount Seir, and they came together against Judah, and they were all routed. It's the same idea in Acts chapter 16. If you remember Paul and Silas, they're in jail together. They began singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. In verse 26, and suddenly it was a great earthquake. What? Their praise invoked an earthquake that broke the shackles free. And immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfasted. When you and I give God the respect that he is due in lifting our voices and posturing our hearts before him, not just here together corporately, but even as we scatter abroad in unity, proclaiming the message of the gospel, he accomplishes powerful things. And the question is, is he accomplishing powerful things or have you and I settled into this American culture in which we do church? Which is my greatest fear as a pastor. I don't want to do church. I don't want to train you to do church. I want to lift my voice to God and see him do an amazing thing. And what's interesting is, is that the more we gather as God's people in this American culture of doing church, the more we misdirect our worship. Think about it. John, in Revelation 19, he falls before the angel in misdirected worship. And the angel says, get up. Get up! Can you imagine that? A roar of thunder, he's seen it, he's heard it, and he falls before the angel. And the angel says, no, 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 no. And what do you and I fall for? Oh, I love that song. Oh, that's my favorite song. 
Oh, I didn't really like that song. Oh, man, did you hear him? He messed up in the middle of that. And listen to me, that's man-centered worship. If your hearts are pricked by music sets or your hearts are pricked by certain genres, then listen to me, that's a man-centered worship. And God doesn't desire man-centered worship. He desires God-centered worship. And so oftentimes we misdirect and misunderstand what really pleases the Lord. And it's happening all the time in our churches. And unfortunately, the way that we've set up our church buildings, it kind of almost leads people to the wrong thought. I mean, that you have a worship leader, that you're almost staring on him as if he is something to be praised, that he's a leading you. It's like this is a spectator sport. And that's not the picture of worship. Do you see what I'm saying, church? Like, he, he desires it, he deserves it, and we have to display it when we get together and when we scatter apart. Prayer. Prayer ought to be a foundational thing. So not just worship as we're kind of wrapping up the list, but prayer. What did the early church pray for? What, what was it that they desired? They prayed to the God of all authority. They knew who controlled all things. And so they prayed to him as if he could do something. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. God is the one who can do all things. It is the picture of Psalm 139, an all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient God who knows all, sees all, and all responds to him. And they, they don't just pray to the God of all authority, but they actually prayed to the God who provides all that we need. And so as the church, they called on God for their help. We talked about that in the very first week. As the people of God, we realize that God's called us together back into community and in community with other people. We call on God for our help. Like he is our source of strength. That is why this last Thursday we have prayer meeting. Is why we call on God. God, we need you. We need you more than we need anything else. They pray that God would provide. It's Acts 17, 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the provider of all things. He provides power. He provides the grace that we need. He provides clarity and ultimately helps us to remember to be devoted to his mission. And I think that's the one thing I want you to understand. Like The purpose of this whole series, Ecclesia, is simply as we were talking about some things as a leadership team, is just saying, you know what? I think we need to continue to, to remind people of God's mission on earth. And so many times we, we fill our schedules with activity, even within the church. And you look up and you go, man, I'm so busy. And you have certain things on certain nights. But the question is, is are you and I on mission for the gospel? Are we on mission for God? Are we proclaiming Him? I mean, here's the deal. Are you and I so desperate for God? Do we believe so strongly in prayer that we believe He's going to accomplish something? Because Acts chapter 13, the people in the early church got together with, with Paul and a handful of others, and they began to pray. In Acts chapter 13, if you look, from there came a massive church planting movement. And 13 of the 27 New Testament books that we have came out of that meeting. 
When's the last prayer meeting that we had that we were so awe-inspired? And you're like, I don't know. I haven't been. That we believed that that time together was as important as this time together. And I honestly think that may be the greatest devastation in American churches is that we have come to believe that this here, this moment here is kind of the Super Bowl and our time of prayer corporately is kind of like pop century. The question is, what do they pray for? Like, why pray? Like, why pray? Like, I get it. You call on God's grace. You receive his power. You devote to his mission. No. Acts chapter 4 kind of gives you this picture in verses 5 through 13. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. There was Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, who were all... Uh, were there of a high priestly family. And when they had sat in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. What boldness! I mean, think about this. Now put this in, in light of what's actually happening. Christ has been crucified. The early church is taking off. Thousands upon thousands, as a picture in Acts chapter 2, have ultimately converted. They're worshiping God with awe-inspiring wonder. They are Hearing the message of reconciliation, they're devoting themselves to prayer and teaching God's word. And then Peter, who always said the wrong thing, always seems to say the right thing now. And he says with boldness, he goes, if you're questioning us about a man who's crippled, you need to know how he was healed. And he goes, and it wasn't some miraculous thing. It wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't something we pulled out of our hat. It was because of Jesus Christ. And you were the one that crucified him. Wow. And verse 11 says, And this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, which one must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, Common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What do we pray for? Like, do you get it? We pray for boldness. God, would you give me the boldness to declare the word like that? God, would you, would you go forth and would you spread your word? Would you, would you allow the, the seed that we scatter to fall on fresh soil? They prayed for each other. They prayed for missional living. Like, is that happening? in our churches? Is it happening in our lives? I believe that God wants to do a work in our lives. I believe that he would love to do a work that you and I have never seen before, one that blows us away. And I think many of us in here are already blown away at what God has done. But what's interesting is how many times we profess that same thought with our mouths, but we, we do very little in terms of prayer and worship to see God respond in that way. 
it's almost as if because we are the church and we come and sing a few songs that his power is going to manifest itself. And it will when we align our hearts in true worship before God and we worship him in spirit and in truth. And we declare the praise of his lips and we pray and ask God to do something that when we declare who he is through prayer and worship that the earth would shake. And we go, that sounds phenomenal. I wish we could be a part of it. And the answer is we can. We can. I think we just want to profess it more than we want to practice it. And so here's the deal. When you see all of these things happening, when you go back and you think of this list of things that you see, life change, witnessing, teaching of the word, fellowship and care, worship, prayer, here's what happens. The church will begin to multiply. It will begin to multiply, and it should multiply. Listen, a healthy church should multiply. What's interesting is, is that that's what Jesus commissioned and commanded the disciples to do. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Hey, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit upon you, what are you to do? You're to go witnesses. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth. We go, oh yeah, absolutely, no problem, I'll do that. But here's what happens. Then we begin to separate something. We begin to separate biblical community from biblical unity, biblical unity from biblical evangelism. And we think, okay, biblical evangelism is, is, is separate from biblical unity. And listen, I'm trying to tell you that they're not. Biblical unity is not separate from biblical evangelism. Francis Schaeffer said it this way, and I think it would make sense. Our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether or not our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Now think back to your churches. All the pastors that proclaim God's word, all the prayer meetings that you had, all the worship songs that you sang. And what's interesting is, is that all the outside world, the ones that we're witnessing to in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, what they're really caring about more than they care right now about what you know is about how you live. And not just how you live in your workplaces and the job, but how you function within the body. Because the most confusing thing is people who separate biblical unity from biblical evangelism. Think about this. Biblical unity, a church that's united, doing all the function of the church, not just creed, something we say, but things we do that support the testimony of God's word and ultimately Christ crucified, should draw men and women to God. And ultimately, that's how he draws men and women to himself is through, get this, the church. And so think back on all the churches you've been a part of that weren't unified, that didn't seem to be healthy, that didn't seem to proclaim the message of God. But what's interesting is, is that the more a church is unified proclaiming the hope of the gospel, the more it should grow. And the more church grows, get this, it should become more Let's try that one more time. The more church grows, it should become more unified. They're not either or. It's not two cycles on a wheel, like two wheels on a cycle. They are synonymous. They're working in unity and evangelism, growth, multiplication. They both work together. The more unified you are, the more people come to know Jesus. The more that people come to know Jesus, the more unified you ought to be. Why? Because it's life change that brings us together. 
That's why next week when we get to baptism and in two weeks when we talk about the Lord's Supper, it ought to be a unifying experience for us. What's interesting is, is that it's become a time for us to schedule something else on our weekend. It's just baptism. No, it's your opportunity to see life change. Men and women called out of darkness into the body, the ecclesia. And you and I ought to see that this is the church growing. I cannot tell you how many times, I literally cannot count it, how many people have said to me at some point along this journey in the last six years, they said, Brian, we love Stone Point, but we just can't handle the growth. We didn't sign up for a church that was going to get big. We didn't sign up for a church that was going to grow like this. And I want to just say, did that just come out of your mouth? Like, did, like, literally, like, if you're thinking it, that's one thing, but did you just really voice that? Think about the foolishness of that statement. And maybe you're like, well, I was kind of contemplating that myself. And I, I'm not trying to make you feel small or belittle you in any way, but think about it. In Acts 2, and 3,000 were added to their number in one day. And then it gets to the end of that, and it says, and there were more being added to their number day by day. I'm like, at what point did you and I get to put a, a cap on the kingdom of God? Because when you and I say things like that, we're essentially saying that somehow in God's provision for people and their need for grace, that we're okay if they receive grace as long as it's not at our place. And I'm like, that's when I think maybe you should go to another place. Because I cannot think of any other reason that the church would exist that people would be called out of darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus Christ to be a part of the ecclesia, the called out ones. And for whatever reason, we've kind of come in America, this, this thought process that we're the called in ones. We just kind of get in our groove. We kind of do our thing. And that's just not the picture of the gospel I see at all. Matter of fact, as we unify in our worship, we expand in our witnessing. When we sing and when we pray and we declare who God is, let me tell you, it should send us out. And it, it should expand the kingdom of God. That's what happens in Acts chapter 8. Stephen is killed in Acts chapter 7. The people get together in Acts chapter 8. They are scattered. They expand. And so you see that their worship caused them to, to not just gather but to scatter. To move. And so as you have a passion for our kingdom, or for our king, we know that there's a passion for his kingdom to expand. For people to come into the gospel. But what's interesting is, is that we have made church such a spectator sport that we've kind of missed it. What do I mean by that? Well, we view leaders as performers. And we view members as spectators. But if... Interesting enough, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says, And he gave some to the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and the building of the body of Christ until we maintain the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God and mature manhood to measure the status of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of darkness, by human cunning, by crafts deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From the whole body, joined to hell, held together by every joint, which appears 
I'm sorry, which uh, is, is equipped, which each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it's built up in love. Like, no, pastors are here to equip people to do the work of ministry. And when you see that, you're going to see growth both locally and globally. You're going to see the church grow. It should grow, Galatians 1. You're going to see quantitative growth, and you should see qualitative growth. Quantitative. It should grow in numbers. If your church isn't growing in numbers, there's a problem. It means that you either profess something in your church name. This is Christian Fellowship Church. Well, it's interesting. I walk in your church, and there's no Christian fellowship. This is the family of faith. Awesome. Well, there's lots of families, but I don't see any faith. That's why we left all that out of our name, just in case we flopped. You ought to see quantitative growth. You see that in the picture of Acts. There were people. So don't say something, well, y'all just seem to be about the numbers. The scriptures clearly show that they were quantitative. There were were people calculating. There seemed to be someone in the church designated to count, okay? The deal is, though, it doesn't matter if you have quantitative and numerical growth if there's not quality growth. If people aren't being discipled into the image of Christ, it does not matter. And so you go, okay, I I get it. There should be worship and prayer and multiplication. Yes. And then the last two that you see common in Acts chapter 2 are the ordinances. That's the Lord's Supper and the prayer. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to actually dedicate two weeks to that. So next week, we're going to take place in an ordinance called baptism. And we're going to baptize people. And we're going to see them called out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ as a representation of what God's already done on the inward part of their life and heart. And so they've already been freed from sin and slavery because of the blood of Christ and ultimately the cross and the crucifixion. But they're going to come forth and with their church family, they want to celebrate with you. Celebrate with you what God has done. And you go, well, I don't know them. You don't have to know them. They're a part of the kingdom of God. They're a part of our body of believers locally. And we want to celebrate with them. And then in two weeks, we're going to talk about what baptism is and ultimately the Lord's Supper. In one Sunday, we're going to talk about those two things. And then we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. And in unity, knowing that God brings us together so that he could send us out. But I want to ask this question. You may wonder, okay, you seem to be pretty passionate about this idea of ecclesia. Never even heard that word, but you seem to be pretty excited about that. Like you, you're almost a little bit more energized about this idea than, than maybe I think you should be. Listen, the reason why is because Christ is the head of the church, and the church are the members of Christ's body functioning throughout the world to make the gospel known. If people are going to hear, it has to be us that goes. We have a great responsibility to Christ and and, and ultimately what he's wanting us to do. Matter of fact, let me ask you this. Maybe your thought is, yeah, I get it, and I don't mind paying. I'll send somebody to go. I'll send somebody to be unified for me. I mean, I care about multiplication, but I'm not going to put my life on the line. Let me ask you a question. What if God would have just sent a paycheck for you? You know what? I mean, I'm gonna, I've got a limited amount of resources. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to purchase some of you. And he just sent a check. Or what if he said, no, I'm not going to send a check. I'm going to send myself. 
the form of my son. That's what the church is. We are Christ to the world. We are the body. Which brings up the question, is being a part of his body important? What really makes you a part of his body? Is membership a part of it? Is that what that means? Members? Is membership, is that really even biblical? And so a lot of people ask that question. Some have come from backgrounds where you're like, I, to be a member meant you went to church. And matter of fact, I oftentimes hear people all the time, or maybe in an obituary that I read throughout our town or Canton or somewhere else, it'll say, and they were a member at Stone Point Church. And I'm like, that's interesting, because I don't remember them being a member at Stone Point. But in their mind, their thought was, is I'm a member if I go there. And so then it becomes kind of a question, like, oh, how often do you have to go to be a member? Is membership really a biblical thought process? Is that something that we should even hold to? And I'll tell you that if you really search the scripture, you're never going to find a clear mandate that you should be a member of a local church. Like there's not, there's nothing there that says, and you should be a member of the local church. There's not a command, but I think you need to look very closely on what's implied. And what is membership really? And so I just want to real quickly kind of give you a picture of what membership must have meant in the New Testament. Is it biblical? Is it something we should be a part of? Well, consider these things. One is the gathering of believers. Think about it. I mean, you had gathering of believers. You had them in Rome. In Acts, you saw the picture of Jerusalem, and then it began to set forth. In Acts chapter 13, you began to see many churches born. You had Philippi, you had Galatia, you had um, Corinth, you had um, Ephesus, you had all of these churches in the New Testament that began to be birthed. And what's interesting is, is that you even see in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the church of Asia sends you greetings, Aquila and, and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you the hearty greetings of the Lord. So it appeared that they met where? In a house. And so what's interesting is you look at a gathering of believers, I think that you'll clearly see that there is an implied idea that you are committed to a local assembly or gathering somewhere, that you're committed to the things that we're talking about, the function of the church, that you would say, I'm all in, and I'm going to associate with these people. What's interesting is, is if you really look through the New Testament, you never see anyone biblically in the New Testament that said, I love God, but I don't want to be baptized. You never saw a New Testament believer that said, I love God, but I don't desire to be a part of his church or the local body. It seemed to suggest that if you loved God, that you dove in with God's people and you declared the praise, not only from your lips, but with your lives. Like New Testament believer is something that most of us have a very difficult time understanding. Why? Because most of us are not near as committed as it seems a New Testament believer must have been. But not only did they gather, but there was also this thing called church discipline. And I want you to see something. Church discipline is suggested by Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. Look what he says. He goes, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Get this. That's a practice that we could use to unify the church. Don't tell everybody else. Don't talk to everybody else, which seems to be a real problem within the churches. He goes, if he listens to you, you've, you've gained your brother. He goes, if, if he hears you, then you're then unified. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What? 
So does that mean like, like our response is, is because one of you guys maybe sins or even myself sins, somebody comes to me, says, Brandon, I think you really have kind of missed the mark here. I want to encourage you to repent. I go, no, I'm not going to repent. Two or three brothers come to me and they say, Brandon, we'd really like you to repent, man. We feel like you're an heir of the word. And I go, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. Then who do they tell that to? The church globally? Like, I mean, we get on CBS News and go, hey, there's this pastor and he's failed the church globally. No, it seems to be local, doesn't it? Like you would tell the church, like you would go. 1 Corinthians 5, you see a, a, a brother who's very immoral, sleeping with his mother. It's actually reported there is some sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you were arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So you see the idea of church discipline. It goes, hey, there's a brother who will not repent for his sin. Matter of fact, he's going around boasting that he has slept with his father's bride. And it says, bring him in front of the church and let him be removed. Verse 5, it says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Like, do you see the, like, the language there? And you're like, whoa, 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 I don't really know about church discipline, okay? Like, I don't, I mean, the question is, is not just should church discipline happen, but who do you bring discipline in front of? It doesn't seem to be a universal body, does it? I, I mean, they didn't bring this guy in front of every church, from Rome to Jerusalem to Ephesus to Philippi to Galatia. They brought him to the church in Corinth. And so there seems to be something that you were a part of, a gathering, almost a, a membership of sort. You may not call it membership, but it was something that you were a part of because why would you remove somebody from something they're not a part of? Right? And so the idea here is that there was discipline. Now, you may be here and you go, well, like, do we practice church discipline? And the answer is yes, we do. And you go, well, that doesn't seem very kind. I mean, it kind of seems a little bit legalistic. And I would say it's not legalistic. It's loving. It's loving. I actually encourage you that if you ever see a time which I seem to be in sin, that the most loving thing you could do is come to me and say, Brandon, I think you're an heir, man. I love you. I care for you deeply. And I want to call you out of that and back into Christ and fellowship with God and his people. That's loving. And you go, well, there's going to be people that leave the church over this. Well, listen. It's not my church to grow. It's God's. And I'll trust that he'll grow it however he needs to. But the most loving thing we can do for people is confront them in their sin and turn them back to repentance to Christ. Isn't that what Peter said? Hey, repent, all of you. Leave the destruction of this world. That's the goal. Our goal is reconciliation. The third thing I want you to consider is just church leadership. It, it seemed that there were leaders that were appointed over local bodies. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. There seemed to be someone that was presiding over the local church. If you look carefully, you'll see throughout the Greek that there's a word for a bishop or elders or pastor or overseer, all the same word, and it's implied that they would oversee local bodies, not universal bodies. So it means that you, according to this, would be accountable to a certain group of leaders. Then let me ask you a question. If you're a member of Christ's body, and ultimately you're a part of his church, are you responsible to every pastor there is on planet Earth? 
I mean, when you see somebody on TVN, should you listen and heed their instruction? Are you going to be accountable to them? And the answer is, if you think, well, this is a global body and there's no real thing as church membership or partnership or whatever you call it, then it means that you would be accountable to them. And every time that you sin and a brother comes to you and you don't listen and two or three come to you and they don't, you don't listen, then they should take it in front of everyone, the world. But that's not the idea. The idea is there are pastors who are in leadership as well. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who uh, will have to, as those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for they, that would be no advantage to you. So the question is, is who are pastors ultimately accountable for? The global body? I mean, am I responsible for everybody that comes in here and sits? Am I responsible for everyone in our community that goes to a church? Am I responsible beyond that for every person in Vansett County that would possibly go to a church? The answer is no. It's clearly implied that I'm responsible for those who are part of our body. But the question is, is what constitutes a part of our body? Like, who am I accountable to God for? Who am I watching over the souls of? You get the idea? In 1 Peter 5, it gives you another idea. So I exhort the elders among you, a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that uh, is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but to be examples of the flock. So there's pastors, and they seem to be a, responsible for some people, right? Got it? And then there's also church accountability, like the church... They're to preach the gospel, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. The church is actually the one who sets the standard for a partnership or a membership according to 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. For what I have to do with you, what do I have to do with outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Did you see the clear distinction? He goes, there are some that you're going to watch over. You're going to shepherd. You're going to make sure that you keep them from sin. You're going to make sure that they're not attacked from wolves within your body, they're dressed in sheep's clothing. There are some that you guard and you guide, and there are others that that's God's responsibility, and leave them be. So I just want you to see the idea here. And the question is, is why? Why is it? And here's why. If we are the church, the people that called out of darkness into the wonderful light, God says, I'm not going to leave you alone. Meaning there's going to be a partnership in the gospel on mission in a war against the enemy. And you need each other and you need to be committed to the cause of the gospel. And so I'm not declaring to you today that you need, you, you have to be a member of our body. We are saying that if you're a member of our body, you are going to be shepherded differently than someone who just comes. That's not to mean that we don't love you and encourage you, but it means that we're not going to try to call you out of things and call you back into something. We're not going to pursue you ultimately like we would pursue some others. You may not agree with that, and that's okay. We don't have to agree on that, but ultimately at the end of the day, I have to be accountable to God for people who are walking in light of the gospel and truth, functioning the way that God wants. And if you don't want to function that way, that's okay. But the other question that poses is, is what do you see membership is? Is it something you're a part of? And here's what I want you to see. It's something God's called you to, and ultimately it's something you should give your life for. I think about a friend of mine, and I'm going to close with this, who is renting a house. And nothing against people that are renting houses, but I remember when I rented a house, I had kind of a certain mindset. I'm paying a certain amount of money, and when I have a problem then I'm going to call the landlord, and it's his obligation to fix it. I remember the time when I rented a house. I didn't mow the yard near as often. 
I didn't trim the plants. I didn't plant flowers. I wasn't going to put money into flowers that I knew that I would never see a return for. And so my buddy, he has a toilet that's not working, and it's just kind of slowly water, water, water. His wife goes, hey, we need to fix this. Let's get something. Let's call a plumber, or, or one of us can fix it. And he goes, no, it's not my responsibility. Call the landlord. Have him come out. And he was adamant about it. No, I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to fix it. I'm not going to fix it. And he saw that as kind of a renter's mentality of like, hey, it's his job. Call him out. And so his wife gets in there because she's like, I'm not going to call the landlord over water in our toilet running. And she begins to notice as she lifts the lid that the chain is just kind of partly off, right? Which, by the way, is about a 25-cent fix and probably takes less than three minutes, right? But it was his sheer idea of, no, it's not my responsibility that he was going to let someone else do it. But I want you to ask you this question. What if my buddy would have owned that house? What if that was his? What, what if he was the one that, was, that owned it, that took care of it? Ultimately, he knows that I'm either going to have to fix the toilet or I'm going to have to pay a plumber to come and take care of it. But it was no one else's job to do what he knew he was to do. That is the picture of the church. There are many that you see the church as something that people owe you. Give me a good message. Give me a few songs. Give me something. There are others of us in here that we realize that membership, partnership, ownership, whatever you want to call it, are people coming together for the gospel, Jesus high and lifted up, and being proclaimed around the world. And you say, I'm all over that. I'm for that, and I want to be accountable to that. That's what the church was. That's what the church should be. And so we just want to call you to God, the gospel, and his glory being made known around the earth. And we realize that we do some things here differently than other churches, but the reason we do that is because we want to shepherd you well. And so this year, we have our 4C survey. We have it every two years, which every member of our church is asked to take 10 to 20 minutes of their time to go through and examine about 80 questions that pertain to their life of faith, connecting to God, to others, and service in the world reminding you of the covenant that you made, that you said, I will attend and I will worship and I will lift up God's name. I'm going to get into community with other people and I'm going to be a pillar of truth around the world. And not only that, I'm going to serve our own body. And so we called you to those four connections points. Well, this December, we're going to open up the 4C survey. We may even open it up a couple of weeks early and we're going to call all of our members, every single one of them, toward accountability. We're going to look and we're going to see, hey, are you and I functioning as members of this body the way that we said we would function? Are we caring for one another? Are we committed to one another? Are we committed to making the gospel made known? And then for us as pastors, we begin to go and lovingly begin to shepherd and call people back. Hey, you said you would be in journey group. You said you would commit to a community of other people. Will you do that? Do you want to continue membership here? Hey, do you want to be a part of his body? Do you want to serve here? Listen, we have needs within the body that you can fulfill. Will you serve? And ultimately, at the end of that 4C survey, you get to decide. I'm going to continue partnering in gospel ministry here with the people of Stone Point as we pursue the gospel made known around the world. Or you can say, hey, I just want to be someone that's a regular attender. I just want to sit in a chair. I don't want, I don't want to have to, the, the responsibility of ownership. 
And that's your choice. But no, we want to shepherd you well because we love you, because we are a part of the church. And so may we commission you well to go and not do, but go and be the church. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for today. We pray, God, that you would use this time to bring honor and glory to yourself. And Father, I pray that you would be high and lifted up in all that we say and all that we do, whether in word or deed, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.